Welcome, everyone, to episode 75 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and I've got another crazy episode for you guys today. We're going to be talking about the Toy Box Killer. So let's just get into the episode. Everyone, sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. This first story is very sexually graphic, and it does mention rape. Listener discretion is advised. David Ray Parker, also known as the Toy Box Killer, was an American kidnapper, torturer, serial rapist, and suspected serial killer. Though no bodies were found, Ray was accused by his accomplices of killing several women and was suspected by the police to have murdered as many as 60 people from Arizona to New Mexico while living in Elephant Butte, New Mexico. Ray was convicted of kidnapping and torture in 2001, for which he received a lengthy sentence, but he was never convicted of murder. He died of a heart attack about one year after his convictions in two cases, the second of which resulted in a plea deal. Ray used soundproofing methods on a semi-trailer, which he called his toy box, and equipped it with items used for sexual torture. He would kidnap between five and six women a year, holding each of them captive for around three to four months. During this period, he would sexually abuse his victims, sometimes involving his dog or his wife who participated willingly in their crimes, and often torture them with surgical instruments. Then Ray would drug them with barbiturates in an attempt to erase their memories of what had happened before abandoning them by the side of the road. David Parker Ray was born on November 6, 1939, in Bellin, New Mexico, to father Cecil Leland Ray, a native of Oregon, and his mother, Nettie Opal Jensen Parker. During his childhood, Ray and his younger sister, Peggy Pearl Ray, lived with his mother's disciplinarian parents, Russell and Dolly Parker, on a small ranch due to their poor financial condition. He was sporadically visited by his violent, alcoholic father, who would supply him with magazines depicting sadomasochistic pornography. At Mountaineer High School in Mountaineer, New Mexico, he was bullied by his peers for his shyness around girls, which resulted in his abusing alcohol and drugs. Ray's sexual fantasies of raping, torturing, and even murdering women developed during his teenage years. When Ray was 14 years old, his sister saw his sadomasochistic drawings and pornographic pictures of bondage practices, 
As a result, Ray and his sister became estranged. Based on statements made by Ray, he is believed to have begun assaulting women as an adolescent. An advisory message that was tape recorded by Ray on July 23, 1993, he claimed, quote, I've been raping bitches ever since I was old enough to jerk off and tie little girls' hands behind their back. He even alleged to his first wife that he had committed his first homicide sometime in 1957 when he kidnapped a woman, tied her to a tree, and tortured and murdered her. However, authorities were unable to verify his account. After completing high school, Ray received an honorable discharge from the United States Army, where his service included work as a general mechanic. Ray then worked as a maintenance man for the New Mexico Parks Department in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, for the entirety of his adulthood until his arrest. The resort town, located approximately five miles from Elephant Butte, contained several local bars, which Ray frequented for victims. In 1997, Ray met 37-year-old Cindy Hindi, who worked at a state park in Truth or Consequences, and who was fleeing convictions on grand theft and drug charges in Washington State, and they became romantically involved and bonded over their shared violent sexual fantasies. In a 1993 recorded message, Ray told his captives that they would be forced to sexually service Hindi as well. Ray was divorced four times and had two children, including his accomplice, daughter, Glinda Jean Ray. Glinda had tried to warn the FBI about her father's criminal activity in 1986. FBI agent Doug Belden recalled Jesse Ray's claims, quote, She alleged that David Parker Ray was abducting and torturing women and selling them to buyers in Mexico. However, the allegations were so nonspecific that the FBI were unable to arrest Ray. Ray sexually tortured and presumably killed his victims using whips, chains, pulleys, straps, clamps, leg spreader bars, surgical blades, electric shock machines, and saws. It is thought that he terrorized many women with these tools for many years with the help of accomplices some of whom were alleged to have been several of the women he was dating. Inside of Ray's torture room, which was a repurposed cargo trailer located immediately outside of his property and was called the Toy Box by Ray, along with numerous sex toys, torture implements, syringes, and detailed diagrams showing ways of inflicting pain, there was a homemade electrical generator to electrocute his victims. In total, Ray is believed to have spent $100,000 on the trailer, fitting it with sex toys and torture devices. Ray would construct elaborate contraptions to confine his victims, such as a fur-lined coffin and a makeshift pillory. In addition, there were also elaborate locks and pulleys to prevent his captives from escaping. A mirror was mounted in the ceiling, above the obstetric table, to which he strapped his victims so that they would be able to see themselves be raped and tortured. He has been said to have wanted his victims to see everything that he was doing to them. Ray also put his victims in wooden contraptions that bent them over and immobilized them 
while he had his dogs and sometimes other friends rape them. Ray often had an audio tape recording of his voice played for his victims whenever they regained consciousness. In the transcripts of his tapes, Ray detailed how he would occasionally release his captives after severely drugging them to induce amnesia to prevent women from reporting the assaults. One tape said, I get off on mind games. After we get completely through with you, you're going to be drugged up real heavy with a combination of sodium pentothal and phenobarbital. They are both hypnotic drugs that will make you extremely susceptible to hypnosis, auto-hypnosis, and hypnotic suggestion. You're going to be kept drugged a couple of days while I play with your mind. By the time I get through brainwashing you, you're not going to remember a fucking thing about this little adventure. Exactly how many murder victims Ray claimed over the years is uncertain. Investigators believe that he raped, tortured, and killed up to 60 individuals over the course of his life, but they had not been able to locate any of their remains. A diary that Ray kept detailed what he did to each victim, but it did not disclose where he buried their bodies. According to accomplice Cindy Hendy, Ray's fatal victims were dismembered and buried, dumped in the Elephant Butte Lake or in nearby ravines. After his arrest, Ray agreed to show authorities where he had buried his victims, but he died before he could do so. Hendy was unable to assist investigators in recovering any possible bodies. The Albuquerque FBI in 2011 released hundreds of images of items that were collected during the investigation of Ray. The FBI believes some of the items, which included jewelry and clothes, may have been taken from victims. The FBI, along with its law enforcement partners in New Mexico, is aggressively pursuing several leads in the search for remains of any possible victims of David Parker Ray, said Frank Fisher of the Albuquerque Field Office. We are asking family and friends of missing people to look over these photographs and contact us if they recognize any of these items. Some of the suspected victims are 53-year-old Billy Ray Bowers disappeared from Phoenix, Arizona on September 25, 1988. On September 28, 1989, the body of an unknown man wrapped in a blue tarp was found by a fisherman at McSira Cove at Elephant Butte Lake. No identification was found on him, and it was determined that he had been shot in the back of the head. The unidentified descendant was ultimately identified as Bowers in March 1999, when authorities made dental record comparisons. In 1986, Bowers was a co-owner of Canal Motors, a used car business that was on North Van Buren Street in Phoenix, Arizona. The owners employed Ray, who worked as a mechanic and was described as very talented, but was also often in conflict with Bowers. While incarcerated, Hendy stated that Ray told her he had killed Bowers and dumped his body in the Elephant Butte River. 22-year-old Jill Suzanne Troya was last seen at the Frontier Restaurant in central Albuquerque during the late evening of September 30, 1995. She had gone to a bar with friends earlier, then went with her girlfriend Glenda Jean Ray 
when they left to go to the restaurant. Witnesses reported Glinda and Troya had an argument. Glinda later told police that she left Troya at the Frontier restaurant and left with her father, Ray, and that she and David went to the Elephant Butte Reservoir in southern New Mexico. Troya has never been heard from again. Rave wrote detailed accounts of sexual tortures and burials of victims, including one in which he described an Asian woman who fitted Troy's description. Among the possessions associated with victims was a two-page letter dated June 1990 to a young woman named Connie from an Australian man named Mark. According to Ray's journal, Connie was a white woman that he abducted and murdered in December 1995. She was 18 years old, had long blonde hair, a birthmark on her chest, and was 5 feet 2 inches tall. The Australian Federal Police and FBI conducted an investigation hoping to locate Mark so that he would be able to identify Connie and her family and friends, but were unable to do so. Her remains have not been located or linked to an existing unidentified or missing persons case. Sylvia Marie Parker, 22, was a homeless woman living on the shores of Elephant Butte Lake who was an acquaintance of Ray's via his daughter, who supplied her with methamphetamine and cocaine. Parker was also the mother of two children and was living with them in a tent that she had borrowed from David. The police later discovered that Parker's boyfriend at the time was Dennis Yancey, one of Ray's playmates. Parker disappeared on July 5th, 1997, when she was abducted and subjected to several days of torture before her accomplice Yancey strangled her to death under orders by Ray. Parker's body was found later that month in an abandoned building in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. She showed no obvious signs of torture. Her death was not connected to Ray until Yancey confessed to her murder in 1999. At 10.30 a.m. on June 30, 1999, Ralph Tudor, a 61-year-old El Paso resident, was fishing in the Elephant Butte Lake. Caught on Tudor's fishing line was an 80-pound gunny sack filled with what he thought was animal flesh. The sack was split along its seam. He then suspected that it was human body parts and alerted the authorities. The gunny sack was determined to contain human flesh, but no organs or bones. This meant that the unidentified victim was mutilated and dismembered before being dumped in the lake. Allegedly, Ray said, The thing to do is cut them down the belly, scoop out their guts, fill the chest cavity with cement weights, and then use bailing wire to wrap them up. Furthermore, state police found bone fragments in Elephant Butte Lake belonging to a human leg in 2011. The DNA identified the victim as a female, but she was not linked to any reported missing women. Cynthia Vigil was abducted from an Albuquerque parking lot by Ray and his girlfriend Cindy Hindi. She was taken to Elephant Butte, confined to the trailer, and tortured. After three days of captivity, Vigil escaped from the trailer on March 22, 1999. To escape, she waited until Ray had gone to work, and then unlocked her chains with keys that Hindi had left on a nearby table. Hindi noticed Vigil's escape, attempt to escape, and a fight ensued. During the struggle, Hindi broke a lamp on the captive's head, 
but Vigil unlocked her chains and stabbed Tindy in the neck with an ice pick. Vigil fled while wearing only an iron slave collar and padlocked chains. She ran down the road seeking help, which she got from a nearby homeowner who took her in, comforted her, and called the police. Her escape led officials to the trailer and instigated the capture of Ray and his accomplices. Police detained Ray and Hindi. Another victim, Angelica Montano, came forward with a similar story to that of Vigil. She said that she had been held captive by Ray after Hindi invited her to the house to pick up cake mix. After being raped and tortured, Montano convinced the pair to release her along the highway. She was picked up by an off-duty law enforcement officer and she told him what happened, but he did not believe her and left her at a bus stop. She also later called police about the incident, but there had been no follow-up. Police identified another victim, Kelly Garrett, from a videotape which weighed dated from 1996. Garrett was found alive in Colorado after police identified her from a tattoo on her ankle. She testified that she had gotten in a fight with her husband and decided to spend the night playing pool with friends. Ray's daughter, Jessie, who knew Garrett, took her to the Blue Water Saloon in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, and may have drugged the beer that she was drinking. She offered Garrett a ride home but instead took her to her father's house. Garrett said that she endured two days of torture before Ray drove her back to her home. Ray told her husband that he had found the woman incoherent on a beach. Her husband did not believe that she could not remember where she had been, and Garrett said that she did not know what to tell police, and so did no contact with them. Her husband sued for divorce, and Garrett moved to Colorado. She was later interviewed on cold case files about her ordeal. The FBI sent 100 agents to examine race property and surroundings, but no identifiable human remains were found. While awaiting trial, Ray spoke to FBI profilers and said that he was fascinated by the kidnapping of Colleen Stan and other sexually motivated kidnappings. The FBI had spoken to Ray as early as 1989 in connection with his business manufacturing and selling bondage-related sexual devices. A judge ruled that the cases for crimes against Cynthia Vigil, Angelica Montano, and Kelly Garrett would be severe, meaning that Ray would be tried for each separately. Prosecutors said that this damaged their case, as each woman's story would otherwise have corroborated and bolstered the other's accounts. The judge also ruled much of the evidence found in the trailer during the 1999 raid could not be admitted in the Garrett or Montano cases. The first trial for crimes against Kelly Garrett resulted in a mistrial after two jurors said that they found her story unbelievable. Ray's defense was that the sex trailer was part of Ray's fantasy life, and any sex was consensual. After a retrial, Ray was convicted on all 12 counts. A week into his trial for crimes against Vigil, Ray agreed to a plea bargain and was sentenced in 2001 to 224 years in prison for numerous offenses in the abduction and sexual torture of three young women at his Elephant Butte home. The plea deal was to obtain leniency for his daughter. Prosecutors stated that the surviving victims had approached, had approved of the deal. 
Ray's daughter, Glenda Jean Ray, was charged with kidnapping and criminal sexual penetration. She would plead no contest and received a 30-month sentence with an additional five years to be served on probation. In 1999, 27-year-old accomplice Dennis Roy Yancey pled guilty to the 1997 murder of 22-year-old Marie Parker in Elephant Butte. Yancey confessed to helping Jesse Ray lure Parker into captivity in, in her father's trailer. Yancey said that Parker was tortured and that Ray had forced him to strangle the woman to death. Prosecutors noted that no forensic evidence was found to tie Parker to the Rays. Yancey was also charged with kidnapping, two counts of conspiracy to commit a crime and tampering with evidence. He was sentenced to 30 years. The Rays were not charged in Parker's murder. In 2010, Yancey was paroled after serving 11 years in prison, but the release was delayed by difficulties in negotiating a plan for residence. Three months after his release in 2011, Yancey was charged with violating his parole. He was remanded to custody, where he remained until 2021, serving the rest of his original sentence. In 2000, Cindy Hendy was an accomplice who testified against Ray, received a sentence of 36 years for her role in the crimes. She was scheduled to receive parole in 2017. She was released on July 15, 2019, after serving the two years of her parole in prison. On May 28, 2002, Ray was taken to the Lee County Correctional Facility in Hobbs, New Mexico, to be questioned by state police. There, he died of a heart attack before the interrogation took place. Cynthia Vigil later founded Street Safe New Mexico, a volunteer harm reduction nonprofit that works with sex workers and other vulnerable people living on the street with Christine Barber. Thankfully, a scumbag like that died in prison. I disagree with his accomplices getting out. They should have spent the rest of their life in prison as well. To kidnap someone and subject them to that kind of torture is just unimaginable. Now our next story comes from YourGhostStories.com and it's their experience in Buffalo Ridge, northeast of Cincinnati, Ohio. One of the more infamous spots around here is Buffalo Ridge, a hilly road that's just a bit northwest of Cincinnati and Cleves. It's actually home to the Mitchell Memorial Forest, a park complete with a nature trail, a lake for fishing, and a playground. Not only that, but supposedly this road is where Charles Manson himself spent his Cincinnati years. I say supposedly since I know his family lived around here at some point but I never really looked into whether or not he grew up around Cleves. Not that it's important to the story anyway. Well, the urban legends of this road are outrageous. Stories range from being chased across the road at night by white vans, to phantom cars from failed gang initiations, an evil dog with glowing green eyes, ghosts that run across the road searching for their missing parts for all eternity, and most importantly, the crematorium. You see, the urban legends say this road was the site of a corrupt crematorium that dropped bodies out in the woods, 
and his now supposedly bodies are still out there somewhere. While I'm in high school, I actually had an English teacher who told me that one time he and his friend drove down there, pulled over, and just happened to open a random barn door for whatever reason and found chickens hanging from ceilings on chains and their blood being collected on leaves below. So they ran back to their car and of course Gravedigger or some other monstrous truck comes tearing out of the driveway and chases him all the way out of Cleves. That's all well and good, but I soon found out from personal research there was never a crematorium there. What is there to this day, however, is the ruins of Cincinnati's first planetarium, hidden in the woods. In fact, if you're still reading and want to know more about it, I made a website explaining the whole background of Buffalo Ridge. At the time I made the site, I had tried just about everything and experienced nothing more than a police officer pulling over and literally laughing at us as we explained to him that we wanted to see dead people run across the road. I can feel my self-esteem rising. It also occurred to us that the park staff had rangers in white vans visiting it frequently, thus killing the chase by white van experience for us. And so, with all of that out of the way, I can now explain my story. About two weeks ago, I led a couple friends that are new to the area down to Buffalo Ridge. These friends being my old friend Jonathan, who's the same age as me and grew up in Indiana, and Kay, his as-of-now girlfriend. I think, well, we get there about 9 p.m. when the sun was close to setting all the way, and as usual, I have them park down the road a bit near another road, the name of which slips my mind, and walk back up to a no-dumping-or-we'll-own-your-butt sign, behind which is a trail leading down the woods and into the ruins of the old planetarium. Being the loser who loves to tell the local history that I am, I was talking pretty loudly about the area while Kay and Jonathan walked behind me. They both carried a couple flashlights to see better in the thick woods, and I just toughed it out in front. Anyways, as we come to what I can only describe as the foundation of the building, a bunch of bricks and torn metal in the hillside is all I got. We sat down and started chatting it up about whatever, and a good 30 minutes passed. Jonathan and I were discussing manly things, like whether we should go get those tiny fries at Steak and Shake, or an even manlier jug of root beer at the Jollies up in Fairfield. Around then, Kay started mumbling about how the air has changed, or something in that degree. So in hopes to see something spooky, I climbed down into the foundation of the old planetarium, and I took Jonathan's flashlight so I could navigate walking around on the fallen stones. At one point, I remember Kay saying that we should get going, and by then I had already made my way to the other side of the rubble and was wanting to look around some more. But Jonathan didn't like making her nervous, so I agreed to climb back out. So being the nice guy that I am, I started to make my way back across the rubble. At this point, I shined my light back up the wall that I had climbed down to see Kay and Jonathan when I saw it. A man I couldn't really make out from where I was was approaching the two of them. So jokingly I shouted, Hey, better tell that guy that we aren't sacrificing babies, or drug dealers, or drug dealers sacrificing babies, and went back to my climbing across the rubble. Eventually, I made, made it up the wall, 
and no one was there. Annoyed, I walked back up the trail to Buffalo Ridge, and I found Kay crying while Jonathan hugged her. So I asked her what happened to our guest, when Jonathan starts ranting and on about how this dude just totally came out of nowhere, walked right up to me, and vanished, which made our heads spin. From then on, we were pretty ecstatic, running back to the truck with Kay frightened, while Jonathan was excited and I was pissed. I want a ghost to walk up on me and disappear, and I didn't even see it since I was walking over some stones and whatnot. Never again will I look where I'm going. Okay, bad idea. So finally, the story has become one of the only real ghosts we've got to talk about, but it's a fun story nonetheless, and has actually gone down in the art institute as I go to, I go to as Jonathan and Alex versus the Invisible Amish Ninjas. Our final story comes from YourGhostStories.com, and it's called Night Terrors at 3 a.m. As always, I'll be reading from the author's perspective. To be honest, I'm not even completely sure if what I'm about to type was truly a paranormal experience, but I have my theory. My husband and I have been living in the same apartment complex for about two years now. Nothing paranormal has happened. I don't think my apartment is haunted, however, I had something strange happen a few weeks ago. I'm usually a restless sleeper. My husband can tell you, I've heard him a few times. I wake up a lot in the middle of the night, however, when this happens, I usually just roll over and go back to sleep, no problem. Well one night, a few weeks ago, I woke up at 3 in the morning. I woke up with the most terrifying fear and I had no idea what I was afraid of. I was so frightened I couldn't even close my eyes to attempt to go back to sleep. I was seriously about to cry, but I didn't want to wake my husband up. What would I say to him? So I just laid awake for an hour, and finally around 4am, I was able to put my horrible feeling aside and go to sleep. Now nothing supernatural happened during this hour. I was just so afraid. I thought that maybe I was just being a scary cat and tried not to think about it the next day. However, it happened again the next night, and then the night after that. Then Thursday night of that week was the first night that it didn't happen, and it hasn't happened since then. It wasn't until last week that I searched the internet to see if 3am had meaning. I thought that it did, but I wasn't sure. The internet said that it was the devil's hour. So I'm thinking that maybe it has something to do with my faith. I've been a Christian since I was a child, and I used to be very devout. I went to church every Sunday, even though I was the only one in my household that went, prayed constantly, and read the Bible every night. Somewhere between then and now, I fell away. I mean, I'm still a Christian, but I changed. I rarely make it to church. I feel obligated to read the Bible. I cuss, occasionally get drunk, etc. Well, I've been feeling guilty, and lately, I've been trying to get back to where I was to live for God. And I've always heard that Satan will come after you when you were doing things like that, because he doesn't want you to succeed. Granted, nothing horrible happened these nights, but the fear I had was immense and came from nowhere. Maybe it's just coincidence, but maybe not.
Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. I know it's not as long as last week's, and I don't know when I'm going to hit an hour and a half again. That was, uh, that was a stretch. But I hope that everyone enjoyed the stories. If you did, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. Thank you in advance for subscribing on YouTube and to helping me eventually reach my goal of 500 subscribers. If you do enjoy the show, please consider helping to support the show by joining on Patreon, with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. Once again, thank you all for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved. <laughs>